But this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Let's listen now to the Word of God, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Amen. Let's turn as well to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35. Let's once again listen to God's Word. But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial, or heavenly, bodies, and terrestrial, or earthly, bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. 
It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord." May He bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 5, focusing our attention upon the end of verse 2. We see Paul in these first two verses building upon the foundation of what he said previously concerning justification by faith alone. And to the extent that his audience has heard and understood and believed that message and received the righteousness of God for their justification, he then proceeds, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Here's what we're going to be focusing on this morning, uh, continuing our, our exposition of this important statement. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So it's in and through Christ, having been justified by faith, that we have peace with God and that we have access by faith into this favorable disposition of God, His loving disposition, His grace towards us, not just gifts, but again, 
his mindset towards us, his affection towards us. By faith, we know that. We enter into that. We're surrounded by his favor as a shield, as Psalm 5 says. We enter into this grace, and it's in and by which uh, we stand. It's that favorable disposition and love of God for us and all that flows from it that enables us to stand in the judgment, to stand in the presence of God, to stand in the evil day against all opposition. Then the apostle also adds to this, as he's constantly doing in the verses that we read. You know, he's constantly saying, and this, and that, not only this, not only that, but it's even more. And he says, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So that the justified believer can find great joy. And he goes on to speak of finding that joy and even a measure of boasting and glorying even in tribulations, even in the dark and desolate times, the believer can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And we said that chapter 5 up through the end of chapter 11 turns our attention upon hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And so as he's dealt with justification by faith, and the need for faith, and the object of faith, and all these things dealing with faith up to the end of chapter 4. He now pivots to speak of those who've believed, what do they have in store for them? What do they have to expect and eagerly anticipate by way of this Christian hope, this, this glorious hope of Christianity? Now, we've said that the church has largely abandoned this aspect of the faith. The church is focused upon what we're supposed to believe, faith, and what we're supposed to do, the duties of love, but we've largely lost the biblical emphasis upon hope. We've we've turned Christianity into literally a hopeless religion. But in chapters 5 through 11, the Apostle Paul refocuses our attention upon the hope of personal sanctification. That though you're struggling with sin and doubt and all these things assailing you in the Christian life, the Lord will uphold you and He will give you perseverance and you have hope that not only will you be sanctified, but but you have perfection in the life to come. Perfect sanctification. Even glorification when Christ returns and raises up your body from the dead and makes all things new and takes you into that heavenly world of love. And so, Throughout these chapters, there's hope. There's hope for the individual Christian striving against sin. There's hope for the nations of the world that are in utter darkness, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But yet, chapters uh, 10 and 11 speak to us of the hope of the power of the gospel, saving sinners among the Jews and Gentiles and bringing uh, life from the dead to the nations of this world. Hope. And we need that hope. It's really the the mediating grace between faith and love. Faith works by love, but you need the hope that, yes, God's love's going to continue, and yes, God's going to enable me to be loving. And you see, hope is at the center of everything. And here we're told, as Paul introduces this idea of hope, he speaks of the hope of the glory of God. And we said, we're not going to rehash this, but we said in previous sermons 
that based on the usage of this type of language, especially in Romans, Paul's clearly speaking of that Christian hope of glory in heaven. Uh, We've already considered several aspects of this hope of glory. We've considered the, the hope of Christ's glorious appearing. And we're told in Scripture that every true Christian is one who loves that appearing, who thinks about it, who anticipates it, who who is constantly filled with a sense that that day is nearer than when I first believed. Day by day, the glorious appearing of Christ. Then we saw from Colossians 3 that, in fact, the glorious appearing of Christ involves the glorious appearing of the bride of Christ, that will appear with Him in glory as well. And so there's a glorious appearing of each believer and of all believers together at the last day when we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. That glorious appearing. We also considered, uh, at least to some extent, we're going to pick it up again this morning, the glorious body. The glorious body that the Lord will give to His people when He raises His people from the dead. Of course, He'll raise everyone from the dead, but the goats, the wicked, will be raised up with bodies that are suited for eternal misery in hell. Bodies where the, the worm will never die, the fire will never be quenched. Those are the two ways that people dispose of bodies, by the way. There's the worm if you bury the body, or fire if you cremate the body. But the, the body will never be disintegrated in hell, it will continue in a uh, really an e- not eternal life in the sense of the believer, but an eternal life of death and misery in hell. And so that's not what we're focused on here. We're focused on the glory of the body that believers will receive. When Jesus returns, He will raise up our bodies from the dead, our physical bodies. We agree with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so when Christ returns, He'll raise up our dead bodies, He'll give them life, and then He will glorify them in a way that we're going to consider with God's help here this morning. But just to review some of the things we've seen previously, uh, the idea of the resurrection of the body reminds us that our physical bodies were made by God, that He formed our father Adam from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into His nostrils. God has given us Bodies and the body has been made, 1 Corinthians 6. It's been made for him. And when Paul gets to Romans chapter 12 and he says, What's the application of this sure hope of what God has promised to do? He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So the believer's body, even in this life, is to be offered to the Lord. It's a clean thing, and it should be clean. We need to maintain personal holiness. We don't want to be living in uncleanness as an unbeliever. But it's a clean thing. It's something God will receive. You know, there were certain animals you couldn't offer in the Old Testament because they were unclean. But our bodies justified, sanctified believers 
Our bodies are a living sacrifice meant to be offered to the Lord every day, and in Christ they are holy and they are acceptable. God loves the body. He didn't make the body as sort of a a prison house for the soul. It has become that to an extent because of sin, but in itself, for the Christian, it's a good thing, and it's united to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 brings that out as well. Uh, Our bodies are united to Christ. He's made them, we've defiled them, He has redeemed them and united them to His Son. Physical, material bodies. And in Romans 8.23, it says, uh, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Okay, there's the sort of prison house of the soul type of thing. Uh, Who will deliver me from the body of this death? He says elsewhere. So, so we appreciate that language. But he says, we're eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And that's what this uh, resurrected, glorified body represents. That full fruition of the redemption of our bodies that we're thinking of here. And, and they're physical, they're material, they're the same bodies. Notice the redemption of our bodies, Paul says in the verse we just read. It's not somebody else's body. It's not a totally different body with no sense of continuity with the body we had in this life. No, the body we have in this life will die and God will miraculously raise that body from the grave, from the ocean, from wherever it's been disintegrated and eaten by a fish and somebody catches the fish. You know, you could go on and on. But God's going to raise it up and... It will have continuity, essential continuity with the body that was uh, laid in the grave or or whatever. It will have different qualities and properties. That's what we're going to think about uh, this morning. It'll be the same body. And there are people who who really resist the idea that we'll have these physical bodies because they're uncomfortable with physicality and with this material aspect of man. But you see, there are people on the other extreme who think, well, my body will just be raised up exactly how it is now, and it just, you know, other than the fact that I won't be sinning, it'll pretty much be business as usual uh, with the same body, with the same qualities and properties. And from a confessional standpoint, that's just not the case. The Reformed faith has never taught that and never will. If, If that is being taught, it's not the Reformed faith. Uh, you can look up uh, references, uh, talk to me afterward, I don't have the reference in front of me, but when it speaks of the resurrection even of Christ and of believers, there are different qualities, different properties. These are the typical terms Reformed theologians will use to, to make that point. So it's the same body with different qualities, and it's a Christ-like body. We saw this before in Philippians chapter 3, that... Our vile body, the body we have now, which is affected by sin and misery in this fallen world, Philippians 3, 20 and 21 uh, tells us, you know, our citizenship is from heaven. We eagerly await Christ's return. He will transform our lowly body, our vile body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Okay, so it will be a body conformed to the image of Christ, who is the firstborn from the dead and the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8, 29. 
we saw in our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that as in Adam all die, so all that are in Christ are made alive by Christ and will be conformed to the image not of the man of dust, but conformed to the image of the man from heaven. Uh, the second man, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus himself. So it'll be a Christ-like body, and it will be a superior body. And this is the last part of the previous sermon. It's been a while, so we're just reviewing this, for better or worse. But uh, it's, it's a superior body. It's conformed to the eschatological Adam, that word last Adam in Greek, the eschaton Adam, the last Adam. The, the Adam of the consummation and of the world to come, who has redeemed his seed and will populate the new heaven and the new earth and populate heaven itself with his seed. Uh, so it's superior not only to our vile fallen bodies, but this body will be superior even to the body Adam had before the fall. And we saw that without the shadow of a doubt, stated in 1 Corinthians 15.35 and following, where the apostle says, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? And then he proceeds to answer that. And he proceeds to make the point that uh, when you plant a crop, you plant a seed. And the seed is very different from the, the body of the crop that eventually grows out of it. Verse 36, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. And he goes on to say there are different kinds of bodies. There are earthly bodies and there are heavenly bodies. Uh, the angels don't have bodies, by the way, so uh, heavenly bodies would refer to the celestial bodies. The heavenly bodies that he goes on to speak of in verse 40, 44 as not a natural body, but a spiritual body that the believer will receive. It'll be superior. Adam had a natural body when he was first created before the fall. We will have a spiritual body. We'll look at what that means but it's superior. 1 John 3, 2 tells us, and we'll come back to 1 Corinthians in a second, but 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So what this is telling us is that Right now, we don't fully understand the glorified humanity of Jesus Christ. And when I say glorified, I don't merely mean his resurrection body where he's eating fish and he's mistaken for a gardener. We're talking about the glorified Christ that when he appears, he's brighter than the noonday sun and John himself hits the dirt. The glorified Christ, the Christ who was glorified at the right hand of God, not merely the resurrection body of Christ, but as Reformed theologians distinguish, the glorification body of Christ when he's given a body suitable for heaven. And John says it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, uh, but when he is revealed, 
we shall be like him. So we don't, Jesus has not been fully revealed in terms of what his glorified humanity is exactly like. Those different qualities or properties of his glorified humanity have not been revealed. When they're revealed, then we'll know more of what we're going to be like because the fact is we will be like him and we shall see him as he is. So even John, who had intimate fellowship with Christ, even after the resurrection, tells us that we don't actually know the full story or the full scope of his glorified humanity, and therefore we don't really know uh, the manner in which our resurrection body uh, will be raised and what it exactly will be like. It'll be the same body, but there's a mystery here. And that's a word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. But the point is, it's superior. And when he points out that it's not the natural body, but the spiritual body, 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on, verse 45, to to say that the natural body that we won't have was the body Adam had before the fall. Speaking of the natural body, he says, and so it is written, verse 45, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That is before the fall. That's uh, Genesis 2.9, I think it is. But it's before the fall. Then it says, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Christ has brought in a new humanity. He's brought in some radical changes from what was the case in Adam before the fall. He says, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. So our resurrection bodies are not going back to what we had before the fall. There will be some continuity, but a massive discontinuity, signified by this word spiritual. He says, verse 47, the first man was of the earth, made of dust, and that's before the fall. Uh, We're made of dust. Uh, We eat things that grow out of the dust, or we eat things that eat things that grow out of the dust, and then we return to the dust, which, of course, that's a result of the fall. But uh, man was made with a dust body in a dust environment. That's not what we're going to have for eternity. Uh, He's very clear here. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. In other words, Adam had a dust body in a dust environment. Christ has brought in a heavenly environment, which means there's going to be a heavenly body that corresponds to the new heavenly environment. Very clear statement here. Why, did Adam ha- why, why does humanity have a dust body? Because we were inhabiting a dust world. Heaven, uh, the heavenly environment will require a heavenly-oriented body. As was the man of dust, verse 48, so also are those who are made of dust, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Again, you see the point. The environment that you will inhabit for eternity determines the qualities and properties of your human body that will inhabit that environment. And so when we were going to inhabit a a dust environment, an earthly environment, we have earthly dust bodies. But when we spend eternity in the house made without hands eternal in the heavens, in the Father's house where Christ is presently preparing a place for us, we will have bodies oriented to that environment. Not total discontinuity, of course, but 
different bodies, different properties to adapt to a different sort of environment. And of course, because that's not been revealed, John says we don't really know what that's going to be like. Uh, and you could, you know, bristle at that and say, well, I'm uncomfortable with that, but, um, you know, isn't it better for the bride not to know where you're going on the honeymoon? I mean, there's something of mystery here that I think we can embrace. Uh, he says, verse 49, and as we have borne the image of the man of dust, again, this is Adam before the fall. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So he's saying the dust body, flesh, blood body that Adam had cannot inherit the heavenly kingdom because it's not oriented with those distinct qualities and properties that will be suitable for the world to come. So it is superior. Uh, Westminster Larger Catechism 39 asks the question of uh, why is it that Christ had to be God, to be our mediator, and one of the reasons he had to be God was to advance our nature. This is often ignored in Reformed circles today. Jesus, through his saving work, has advanced human nature to the point of glorification far beyond anything that Adam ever had before the fall. Christ has advanced human nature, and in him our human natures, when they're raised from the dead, our bodies will be advanced. What does all of that entail for the human soul, for the human mind, for the human body? Uh, we, we don't have time to get into all those things, nor could we really provide, I think, the kind of answers that we would like to have, but we will be conformed to the advanced human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ who presently reigns in glory. Now, uh, we've said that this body's going to be superior. We've used words like spiritual, or Paul has used words like spiritual and heavenly, but of course these things are somewhat vague, so let's dive in and try to look a little bit at uh, in what sense, in what respects, will this glorified, heavenly, spiritual, resurrected body be superior to what Adam had before the fall? We can summarize this in this way, that the believer's glorified resurrection body will be superior to Adam's pre-fall dust body in at least four ways. There are at least four ways I think we can glean from our text and from the scriptures in which the glorified resurrection body of believers, and I stress that, believers, okay, the resurrection for the unbeliever will not be a pleasant thing. It's not something to look forward to. Uh, it, you're going to be brought into a, a, an environment now where not only are you suffering in your soul as you've been from the point of your death until the return of Christ, suffering in hell as a disembodied spirit filled with guilt and condemnation and abandonment, and misery, but now you're going to have a whole new way in which to suffer because you're going to have a body in which you will suffer in hell for all eternity. Uh, just as Jesus suffered agonizingly in his body and he wouldn't take wine because there's no anesthetic in hell, even so the unconverted will suffer 
unthinkable torments in their body in hell. So that's a warning to us to believe, to be justified by faith, and then to enter into this glorious contemplation of the four ways in which this body will be superior to what Adam had before the fall. First, first, it's spirituality. Uh, This glorified resurrection body, we can say that it's spirituality in relation to Christ who has become a life-giving spirit. This is the first way in which our body in the world to come will be superior to Adam's dust body. It'll be superior in this sense in, in terms of its spirituality in relation to Christ who has become a life-giving spirit. And that's exactly what Paul says. Okay, so we're not reinventing the wheel. There's nothing here you couldn't get just from reading and thinking about the passage. But verse 44, let's look at it again. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Okay? So we're told here the superiority is in its spirituality. But notice it's in its spirituality in relation to Christ, the life-giving spirit. So verse 45, he quotes Genesis chapter 2, as it is written, the first man became a living being. So Adam was created as a living being, and from Adam we all descend, all of us here today. We all descend from Adam. He was a living being with a capacity to reproduce. Adam and Eve begat Cain and Abel, and eventually then Seth, because the whole debacle with Cain and Abel, and then Seth, and then so on and so forth, down through the ages, and we we all descend from Adam and Eve. And that was an aspect of Adam's initial creation before the fall. Uh, The first man became a living being. He had a body, he had a soul, he had the ability to procreate, to beget children, and to produce uh, an offspring that would spread out throughout this world. But Uh, That's about it. Uh, We rely on Adam in a sort of indirect way that there's a chain of causes that goes back to him. And that's the sense of the first Adam. He's significant, to be sure. Without him, we wouldn't be here. Uh, But our everyday lives, even our own conception and birth, is not directly from Adam. And the sustaining of our physical life and our lives in this world is not the direct result of anything Adam is presently doing. So there's, there, there's a very limited sense in which we sort of owe it all to him, our first father. But not so with Christ. The last Adam, who is the first fruits from the dead, the firstborn from the dead in the new world, the new heavenly world to come, the new place of man's habitation. Man inhabited the heavens and the earth. Now he's going to inhabit a new habitation, a new heavens and the new earth in heaven itself. And we're told that the last Adam is different from the first Adam in that he became a life-giving spirit. What does that mean? That, that right there seems confusing because we think of life-giving spirit, we think of the Holy Spirit. But it's not saying the Holy Spirit, not that the Holy Spirit is totally separate, but Christ is a life-giving spirit. And in fact, he, according to our translation here, I think it's helpful became a life-giving spirit. Through his saving work, culminating in the resurrection, Christ has become a life-giving spirit. 
And what that means is that Christ not only was raised from the dead and has life himself, but that he now has life and is the source and fountain of life for his people. Christ who, when Christ who is our life returns in glory, Colossians 3. Christ has become the life of His people, the source of life, the fountain of life, the bread of life, the water of life, the light of life. Our life is hid with Christ in God, and all of our life, the vine, the branches, everything, physical and spiritual in the world to come, will proceed from Christ Himself directly. We will be sustained by Him, not only in our souls, as we would say today, that uh, Christ is presently sustaining our souls in direct union with Him, uh, but He doesn't presently do that with our bodies. He you know, gives us bread and food, and we eat and drink, and we receive nourishment and sustaining power from these indirect gifts of Christ, but not so in heaven. He is a life-giving Spirit. And what this is telling us, I want you to think about just the, the logic of, of, of this point. Christ, first of all, is God himself. There is a divine life that Jesus possesses as the second person of the Trinity from all eternity. Okay? This divine life is spoken of in John 5.26 which says, for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted to ha- the Son to have life in Himself. Now, this is a paradox of a verse. It's the linchpin in historic Christian Trinitarian theology, not so much in recent years. People, I don't think, are rightly interpreting this verse. But this verse is speaking of the eternal divine life of the Son of God in communion with the Father. It says, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And you say, well, it says He's granted it. So it can't be His eternal divine life. Yes, but uh, when the Father grants Jesus as the mediator, not as God, but as the mediator, when when the Father grants Jesus as man or as the God-man, when He grants Him life. Does he grant him life in himself equal with the Father? No, he does not. He most certainly does not. Christ as man does not have life in himself. His human nature is sustained by the divine nature. Uh, His human nature does not have the divine attribute of aseity or absolute existential independence. Notice the verse says, as the Father has life in Himself. And then it says, whatever the Father's granted is that the Son would have life in Himself. So, so the Son does not have life in Himself in the same way the Father has life in Himself according to His place as our mediator. This is something that He has as the eternal Son of God. And that's a divine life, a divine attribute that cannot and must not be mixed with His human attributes. But you say, well, then why does it say granted? And you see, historic Christian Trinitarian theologians have interpreted that word granted as a reference to the eternal generation of the Son by the Father. This is a historic proof text among Orthodox Christians who will say and assert, and rightly so, 
that from all eternity, the Father has begotten His Son, co-equal, co-extensive, co-eternal, in every sense of the word. He has begotten His Son to share equally and eternally in the divine nature, one of the attributes of which is life in itself, aseity, existential independence. And the Father, by way of eternal generation, before which there was nothing, it's not a sequence of chronology, but it's, it's outside of time. The Father has begotten the Son and thereby granted Him an eternal, co-equal share in the divine life. That's a deep and beautiful point that John is making, as usual. He does this throughout the, the Gospel of John. So Jesus has divine life in himself. We we hear theologians debating whether Jesus is God of himself. He is God of himself in the sense that he possesses the divine attribute of existential independence and uh, self-sufficiency. But he shares in that divine attribute by way of the eternal generation from the Father. So he has this divine life, and we're told John develops this later in his gospel that this one who has infinite divine life has become man. And through his humanity, he is as food and drink to communicate life to his people. John 6, 48, the bread of life discourse. I am the bread of life. This is Jesus now as the God-man. He's God with life in himself. He's now become man so that through his humanity, uniting sinners to himself, he may communicate life as the bread, as the food, as the drink of his people, of his people's souls in this life and of their life in its totality in the world to come. He's the bread of life. The, the sustaining source of life, as, as we know bread was in the ancient world. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. So the infinite, all-sufficient, self-sufficient divine life becomes man that he may communicate to man this life, this eternal life this heavenly life. And of course, they uh, object to him at this uh, Capernaum synagogue. They're not happy with it. They're, They're raising objections against him. But he says, verse 53, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So you see, Jesus, the infinite divine life, incarnated as a man so that he can give that life, that eternal life to human sinners who are united to him by faith. And it's through his resurrection that he gains this glorified ministry of pouring forth that life to his people. In particular at the last day when he raises them from the dead. So you have the divine life through the, through, through the mediating role of the human life, and it produces at his resurrection, resurrection life. I am the resurrection and the life. And 
This is what raises his people from the dead at the last day. Notice again, not just in their souls, but in their bodies. Resurrection life is not the same life as earthly life. The life we receive from Adam, who was made a living spirit, and we descend from him by ordinary generation, is not the same quality of life, not the same life as resurrection life from the second Adam, who's the firstborn from the dead, and who imparts life to his people as the fountain, as the bread, as the water of life. It's not the same life. It will be a higher life, a heavenly life, in the same way that our earthly life had its origin in an earthly way. Whatever is begotten of flesh is flesh, as Jesus said. The origin and continuance of our physical lives on earth are from the earth, from human procreation of dust bodies, producing human bodies that, that are nourished by the dust one way or the other. But heavenly life from the second Adam will be different. He is the life-giving spirit And he will raise our physical bodies. The origin of our physical resurrected life will be from Christ. And therefore, the continuance of our physical resurrected life will be directly from Christ. In the same way we can say spiritually, he's the vine, we're the branches. In this life, we will be able to say physically in the life to come that our physical life is constantly ever proceeding from the God-man who sustains us. And we can see this illustrated. Um, We can see this illustrated, because you may be thinking, well, this is, uh, where are we going with this? But uh, this is illustrated in the book of Revelation. And uh, there's, I said I had four points, we're just dealing with this one for now. But um, Revelation chapter 21, verse 23 Because everything I've said so far, it's, it may seem extreme, it may seem radical, but I want, I want to point out the way that the Bible speaks of heaven in such a way that it's so far beyond this world that it forces us to grapple with the very things that we're, that we're studying right now. Revelation 21, 23. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Now, we have a tendency to read this and say, well, there won't be any night. Which, of course, you can look that up as well. There won't be a night. Uh, Revelation 22, verse 5. But we tend to say, well, Jesus will shine so brightly and he'll provide light. And that's true. But understand when it says that Jesus takes the place of the sun and the moon. Do we understand the, the significance of that? Do we understand the, the, the radical assertion that John is making here about the world to come? Do we understand that the sun is what causes things to grow? Okay? The sun is the source of light. The light of life is a phrase the Bible uses frequently, and, and rightly so. It's the light of the sun that heats this world and makes it inhabitable. It's the light of the sun that causes plants to grow so that we can eat them or that animals can eat them and we can eat the animals or whatever. It's the sun that causes everything. If the sun stopped, everything would stop. It wouldn't just be dark, right? If, there, if the sun ceased to exist, 
the world would cease to exist. Every aspect of our bodies, every aspect of the physical creation presupposes the sun as absolutely necessary for the, the cycle of life to continue. If the sun ceased to exist, it wouldn't just be dark. But that's the way we treat this verse. But that's not what the verse is limited to at all. Um, the lamb is its light. There's no need of a sun. The lamb is its light. The lamb is its light, its heat, its source of life, the thing that sustains every single atom or molecule in the world to come, including our physical bodies. Christ is the one who raised them up, and so Christ is the one who will sustain them. And so we won't be sustained indirectly by the dust of the ground and a dust body and eating fruit from a tree. We will be sustained directly by the Lord Jesus Christ who raised us and who is our meat and drink and bread and water and fountain and light of life. And so a spiritual body, what is that saying? That's our first point. We'll just leave it there. We'll go to the next ones next week but, or two weeks from now. But what is it saying? Spiritual body. It's saying Christ is a life-giving spirit. The, the, the God who is spirit, the second person of the Trinity, through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God and man, through the, the, the resurrection of that God-man on our behalf, will infuse us with glorified resurrection life in our body, in our soul, He is a life-giving spirit. So if you look at the beginning, he's the divine spirit, and you look at the end, we receive life. He's a life-giving spirit. And our bodies, being raised by Christ, will be sustained by Christ in a way that is beyond our comprehension. Now in closing, let me make some applications, and we'll get to some of these other points later on. You need to meditate constantly upon your heavenly future. You need to be thinking about these things. You need to be recognizing what your destination is. Recently, I was at the airport, and it seemed like everything was determined by your destination. Everything, you know, where you go, the gate that you go to, you're always looking at these boards to see if you're destined, you know, where you're you're going, where your flight's going to arrive. It's all based on your destination. Uh, it's very unpostmodern, right? Our society, all they can think about is, well, it's the journey. It's really just the plane flight and the movie that you watch. It doesn't matter where the destination is, but that's obviously ridiculous. And anytime you try to use that philosophy of life in a practical situation, like traveling, it would be utterly ridiculous. Who knows where you'd end up? Probably like New Jersey or something instead of where you wanted to go. Um, no offense. But, but the point is that you need to think about your destination, Destination is everything, both in this life and in your spiritual life and in every aspect of your life. It's not just the journey, it's the destination. And so you need to be meditating upon the utter dependency that you will have upon Christ in the world to come. Right now, and we'll deal with this with food and things in heaven, but Right now, you get up, you eat breakfast, you drink coffee for energy. You know, you do these things, and Christ sustains you indirectly through these means and methods that he has appointed. But understand, there's coming a day when you will rely upon him physically in the same way you rely upon him now, spiritually. 
which means you need to think about your reliance upon him spiritually right now. How can you expect to live the Christian life if you're not abiding in the vine? If you're not constantly praying and seeking strength from him and relying upon him as your life, as your length of days, as your strength, as your energy, as the strength of your heart and your portion forever, how are you going to face the Christian life? Because I'm here to tell you right now, your soul is entirely dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a spiritual life within you, just like your spiritual body to come uh, will, will be similar. But you have a spiritual life within you that flows directly from Christ. If you are distant from Him, your life shrivels and shrinks and your godliness and your witness and your love and your everything shrinks and shrivels and you produce no fruit or rotten fruit or not nearly the fruit that you should be producing. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. So meditate upon the sense in which that'll be true in heaven, but cling to the reality of what it means right now for you on this Sabbath day. Everything you have and are spiritually is directly from the vine, from Christ. Yes, he uses means of grace, and yes, there's probably something far better in heaven, but the point, the principle is still there that it's Christ through those means of grace. And so take what Christ has taught you this morning, take what he's spoken to your soul this morning through the ordinances, through the singing, through the preaching and the reading, take it, cling to it, feast upon it, be nourished and refreshed by it, that you might labor diligently doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Gracious God, you know that we are dust and that we are ashes, but you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ who proclaims to us the good news of salvation, that our God reigns, the gospel of peace by which our ashes are exchanged for beauty, our mourning for garments of joy. We pray that we would indeed rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and that you would instruct us and sanctify us in these truths of your word that we may show forth the glory of Christ reflecting his beauty, his character, his love, his grace, his patience and kindness to all around us. We ask in his name. Amen.